Hey, go ahead if you have your Bibles. You can turn to Revelation 21, the last book of the Bible, almost the last chapter of the Bible. If you're on a device, we go through the ESV, the English Standard Version, so you can click on that and stay with us. So we've been going through this four-week series. It's called One Story, One Savior, where we've attempted to really just kind of kind of do a, a, a drive-by through, if that's even the word, through the whole Bible, and to understand how the Bible was written, what God's intentions were behind it. Because a lot of the times what happens, as we've learned, is that we, we read the Bible and, and we sort of interpret it or we, or we draw from it as being just this nice selection of, of random stories or motivational words or moral suggestions. Uh, and when actuality, the Bible is a grand redemptive narrative written by God. You know, there is an author, there is a writer who controls the narrative of the universe. Now, you guys know this because of the kinds of movies you like to watch, because of the kind of stories you like to read. Some of you guys, if you were like super brave, you'd admit that you've been clicking on Hallmark Channel, you know, for the last like, you know, four weeks. And, uh, you know, and I know if you follow my Instagram, you think, oh, Ronnie's like the Hallmark Channel guy. I have my standards. And uh, Hallmark doesn't really fit into those standards. I'm just being honest with you uh, right now. Um, but the problem with the, the redemptive narrative that we see just literally streaming through almost every aspect of our own stories and the stories that we read and the stories that we watch is that it all kind of ends up the same, right? Like even when you watch Hallmark Channel, right, they, they got the storyline down, however cheesy it is, however many Christmas sweaters are involved, you know, in the making of the story, but it's all kind of the same thing where everything was good, everything goes bad, you know, Zeke or Scott or whatever his name is, I'm just looking out, so those are my names I'm picking right now, you know, with the sweater walks in and, you know, the, the, the girl that needs the help and, you know, they find each other, they're both lonely and everything seems great and then the movie ends and then what's awesome is that if you just wait like three minutes, another one starts right after it if you didn't get your fill. But the problem is that someday the boy is going to disappoint the girl, right? And someday the girl is going to disappoint the boy. And if they look to one another to be the ultimate source of everything that they're longing for, all of their happiness and their fulfillment and their security, they're going to hit a ceiling every time. The problem is they, they just don't end the movie at, at that particular point. Now, the Bible illustrates to us and what we've been learning over the last three weeks, that God is the one who controls the narrative. God controls the narrative of the world because he's the author and he's actually given us his word to clue us in on just where we can find the source of a hope that doesn't discourage and doesn't disappoint. And so we've seen it in sort of these, we're seeing it unfold in these sort of four acts we call this divine drama that God has written. We started with creation, then we went to the fall, and then last week we talked about redemption, and this week we're talking about restoration. Now, one of the most vivid and sobering scenes, if you guys have ever watched one of the, you know, 19, you know, versions of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, or if you're better than that and you read the book, um, it's this scene when Ebenezer Scrooge is visited, right, by his old business partner, Jacob Marley, and uh, Marley's just giving him the bad news, and at one point, Scrooge says, Speak comfort to me, Jacob. Like, this is not sounding good. What's coming out of your mouth is something that I don't want to see unfold in my life. And what Jacob replies to him is he says, Brother, I have none to give you. I have none to give you. So if we look back on the story of even Ebenezer Scrooge, which is just, you know, just kind of, you know, kind of, you know, 
rolls through like a, there's just this vivid timeline of all the Christmases we've ever had as a story that we know and we love, we see sort of the starkness of a man who has just been following his own path. He's been following his own desire. He's been following his own whim. And what he finds out is that that's not going to be enough to sustain him beyond the grave. It's not been enough to even give him hope before the grave. You know, one of the alternate titles for this sermon, which we just called Restoration, it could, could be this. It could be called, Everything's Going to Be Okay. You know, what's amazing about that is that really Christians are the only people that can ever say that without it being a trite cliche. We're the only ones that can literally go to another brother and sister and say, you know what? It's actually going to be okay and have it have any sense of worth or validity, or meaning, or truth. Because even though things might not be okay in the present and in the moment, what did we just sing? What did we just read together? We know that eventually everything's going to be okay. That is the hope of the Christian. That is the hope of the Christian faith. So let's spend a few minutes here. If you're in Revelation chapter 21, I'm just going to go through eight verses. We're going to just briefly unpack those, and we're going to see what God has laid out for us in sort of his fourth stage of redemptive history, which is called restoration. And this is what it says in verse one of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither Shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're going to stop right there. This passage just ends slightly dark for us right here, right? We get this apocalyptic warning about those who will not be part of God's kingdom and what their portion will be. So what I want to do as we're beginning is I want to cover this first so that we understand what Jesus was saying to the apostle John and two, so we don't end all nightmare before Christmas, right before Christmas, right? We need to be real clear here about verse eight, because if we understand this wrongly, like none of us are in, Right, like, like with that list right there, he just excluded everybody, right? But it's interesting that when we read through the narrative of Scripture, which we've done a little bit of, all we see are men and women who fit these categories. 
but somehow they are clearly loved, they are clearly accepted, and they're clearly used by God. I mean, let's just talk about a couple of these categories. Let's talk about being a, being a coward. Remember the story of Gideon? When God visits Gideon and he's like pressing wine in like the, the wheat press, you know, because he's scared, he's underground, is not anyone to see him? He can't be blatant about his faith because he's afraid of the Midianites capturing him, taking his food, probably murdering him. So we see a guy that God used who was just a coward. He didn't stand up for his faith. He was like hiding in a bunker. What about murderers? Well, man, what do we see in Scripture when we think about men who have murdered, right? We think about David, right? He took advantage of his position, and he murders the husband of the wife that he has an affair with. We think about Paul who went around as a Pharisee in the early days of Christianity, going from church to church, house to house, locking Christians up for proclaiming their faith, murdering Christians, because he wasn't vibing with their message. What about faithlessness? Oh, remember Peter, the apostle Peter, on the night before Jesus' death, what happens to Pete? I mean, he betrays, he, he betrays Jesus. He denies him three times. I mean, here's somebody that God used. What about sexual immorality? Again, let's go back to David, a king, a king, a man after God's own heart, a king of Israel, the king of all kings over Israel who commits Adultery, what about the conversation that Jesus has with the woman at the well who had had five husbands and was currently living with a man that she wasn't married to who eventually hears the words of Jesus and is changed? All of the people that I just mentioned are what Paul calls in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, he calls them more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. So we get that phrase, more than conquerors. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us this. It tells us that it's not enough to be a conqueror. It's not enough to merely be a conqueror. Amazon Prime right now, right, is filled with books giving you literally like everything that you could ever want. Ten steps to conquer your fears. Five ways to not let your past define you. How to go from sad to mad to glad, you know. I mean, like all of this stuff, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's like one click, you know? You can get to a place where you can conquer your fears, where you will never murder another human being and somehow still not be right with God. Whereas you can have just this legendary, horrific, or tragic past and find redemption and restoration with God. And so that's why we don't grade this list on our own bell curve. Because humanly speaking, I'm thinking, wait, a liar and a coward have the same destiny as a murderer, right? That's why Jesus completely flipped the switch on how we define acceptability to God, right? What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? Well, he said this. He said, you say don't murder, but I'm telling you right now, if you're angry with your brother, you are liable to judgment, he says. Then he says, you say don't commit adultery, but I'm telling you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've created adultery with her in your heart. So Jesus, what does he do there? Well, he levels the playing field. He points out that sin is a desire of the heart against God's desire, against God's design, which he gets to establish. Why? Because he's the creator. He gets to make those rules. So I brought up this example before. This is all I got. I'm just going to roll this one out there again. All right. It's kind of like if you were an artist and you had painted a beautiful painting. Everything was how you wanted it to be shaped and formed. All the colors were in place. The canvas was the canvas you wanted right? 
And what if somebody just walked by and said, you know, I don't really like that shade of blue very much, and grabbed one of your brushes and went, clink, clink. I don't know if that's the sound that you make with brushes. When, you know, brush, brush. Help me here, kids. What would you do, right? You would say, well, that, that portrait that you had creative control over as the creator had been violated. Yeah, but hold on. I thought that it needed to be a different shade of blue. It doesn't matter what you think because you weren't the one that created the portrait. And so that's what's, that's what's happening to us here when we consider what's going on here in verse A. That's why even we make the argument, hey, you know what? This sin that I'm involved in, it's not hurting anybody, is it? Well, we understand that as a creator God that had something in mind when he made us and formed us in his image that ultimately all of our sin is hurting God. And that's who we're most concerned with hurting. Sinning and shaking our fist at God and saying, I want to paint my life that color. I want it to be that shade. It should be that shape. That's why you need to be more than a conqueror through Jesus because only he can rescue and restore your desires to paint over God's good and beautiful portrait and bring them back to wanting exactly the kind of colors that he originally designed and drew up for you. Only Jesus We just sang it, I think, four times. Only Jesus was able to conquer our cowardly, faithless, lying, murdering, sexually immoral hearts on the cross. And guess what? That list doesn't exclude anybody. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He said, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Did he cover the list there? You know what we do with that list? We go, well, I'm gonna gonna take this one and move it up there, and then all these other ones that are a little more respectable, I'm gonna just sort of tuck those away. And he doesn't do that at all. He says, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, and such, he says, were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what verse 8 is telling us is that it's people that persist in a pattern of sin without coming to God in humility to be washed and justified. These are people that are going to be in a category of people who will not be part of God's fourth act and final redemptive act. And by the way, in case that doesn't sound inclusive enough, everybody that rejects Jesus, they're just getting what they want in the end, which is separation from God. Okay, do we cover that? I mean, do we cover that sufficiently? Because we can just keep going on and on, but there is an astoundingly beautiful and fulfilling hopefulness for those who come before God in their helplessness and repent of their sin, embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that hope is restoration. So what we're going to do is we're going we're to read uh, three different ways that this restoration is fleshed out for us between verses 1 and 7. The first one is this, creation is transformed. Secondly, mankind is reunited 
And then thirdly, where we're going to end, death and suffering is abolished. The first one is creation is transformed when you read verses 1 through 2. Going back to Romans 8, verse 19, this is what Paul tells us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing, he says, of the sons of God. For this is what he says about creation. It was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is what he ends it with. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So this is the moment that creation itself, this final act of restoration, where it's released from its bondage to corruption. It obtains the freedom it once knew so long ago. In fact, if you even go to verses uh, 9 through 21, John gives this beautiful, detailed description of the new Jerusalem, the city of God, and all of its sort of this no expense spared opulence, right? A city where no sin exists to obscure the beauty and peace between all the races. Uh, A place where there will be no wars to cast this new earth into chaos and ruin. A place where there will be no earthly or spiritual degradation because it's a city where God dwells, where his light permeates through everything where his glory is diminished. So I was watching this documentary a few months ago on Netflix about this little town in Oregon called Antelope, where, I, I don't know, like 30 years ago, this new age cult moved in. That is like back in the early 80s. And they, they tried to establish this new like utopian city and surprise today, it does not exist. It's just completely leveled out. It's, it's, uh, it's in ruins. And that's a historical theme, by the way, Right? Our attempts at creating heaven on earth are always just these exercises in futility because we are run-down people living on an earth that is running down. But here's what's interesting is that our attempts to create earthly utopias, they actually hint at a couple of unique things that are intrinsic to our insides. Number one, they hint at our desire for something perfect and lasting. And number two that we believe that as humans, we possess the power within ourselves to actually attain it. Now, now the first part, that desire for something lasting and perfect is good. And it actually points at something inescapably like written into our hearts. The second part is just delusional, right? C.S. Lewis made this statement. He said, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we have ever desired anything else, right? C.S. Lewis understood something about our deepest longing. Our hearts are drawn to beauty and to newness and to lastingness. I remember back in the day, this is going to date me, right, when I used to open up, you know, the Sears catalog, right? Every September, the Sears catalog would come out in the back section after getting through all the stuff that no kid in his right mind would ever want. You know, they had all the beautiful new toys, you know, for 1945 or whenever I was back, back in that time, And um, so, you know, you just pour through that thing. Never once did I ask my parents. I mean, this never came out of me. Never once did I ask my parents to rewrap a gift they had gotten me the year before, right? You know, man, I don't need the catalog this year, mom. Just why don't you just grab that thing that's been sitting there collecting dust in the backyard, rewrap it, I'll be good, right? Like that never happens. And in fact, man, most of you right now are going to all this work during this season to do what, man? Well, you're wrapping presents, you're preparing meals, you're decorating your house. Why? Why are you doing those things? Well, because there is something intrinsic 
inside of you that is drawn to making things beautiful. You're drawn to invitation and inviting people over to be a part of something that's new and beautiful. There's something in you that likes to celebrate newness. There's something in you that's drawn to the kind of love and care that you get to show to other people by making a big deal out of this season and making it beautiful. What you're doing in those moments is you're creating a sense of newness. You're creating something to behold that lifts out of the mundane and the brokenness and the suffering that we experience on a daily basis. But here's the issue. To retain that earthly newness, then you're forced into maintenance because nothing stays new. God says in verse five, what does he say? Behold, I am making all things new. Because what power do you, what power do I have What power do we possess to maintain any sense of newness? Well, actually none, right? We just maintain things that are new and that are fading and that are rusting and that are losing their paint, that are beginning to stop working. Only a creator God seated on a throne who is ruler over all things can keep all things permanently and lastingly new. And so Christian hope then, it rests in the surety that God will transform creation. That's what he's talking about. And by the way, that doesn't mean abolish it either. God takes what is there and he transfigures it, which is why there's nothing biblical really about the phrase, it's all gonna burn, right? Psalm 24.1, David reminds us, he says this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He says the, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas, he has established it upon the river. So no, man, we, we, don't, we don't have that kind of flippancy towards God, God's creation. We, we respect it, we take care of the things that he took care to create because by doing that, we are looking toward the day when a new heaven and a new earth and a new city will be transformed and presented to us like a bride on her wedding day. What was once in ruin will be renewed. That's Christian hope, right? You guys remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, you guys remember the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, how the book starts out when the, when the four pevency, if that's how you pronounce it, children, get to Narnia. It's always winter. It's never Christmas, right? But then we find out that Aslan has returned, he's on the move, and his people knew he was on the move. Why? Because winter was turning to spring. The curse of the white witch was being reversed. Someday, what this passage is telling us is that the curse of sin will finally come to full reversal. Randy Alcorn, a guy who wrote this amazing book called Heaven, he says this, he said, if God were to end history and reign forever in a distant heaven, earth would be remembered as a graveyard of sin and failure. Instead, earth will be redeemed and resurrected. And in the end, it will be a far greater world, even for having gone through the birth pains of suffering and sin. Yes, even sin, he says. And then he finishes by saying, the new earth will justify the old earth's disaster, making good out of it, putting it in perspective. It will preserve and perpetuate earth's original design and heritage. So what this means is that when we look around at a world that is in decay and decline, we don't have to, number one, ignore it and try to create some utopian escape plan, right? We don't have to do that. Number two, we don't have to become cynical and say, what does it matter? We can set our eyes on something above and beyond because in Christ, we have the assurance that God is 
authoring a story that has an ending for the earth worth hoping and worth waiting for. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, he says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? How? He says it. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So to be raised in Christ means we have something worth raising our eyes to and setting our minds on that doesn't leave us disappointed, delusional, suspicious, or cynical. Do all those things sound familiar to you? Because, man, I just think we're immersed in those things right now. That someday, creation will be transformed. Secondly, mankind is reunited. If you look down at verse 3, which says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You guys remember last year about this time we were getting ready to leave on our sabbatical, and we came back right before Easter. Listen, as good as it was, we were so ready to come home. Uh, We were so ready to be reunited with you all. We were so ready to be back in our own house, back in our own bed. Verse 3 is that moment when God's people are finally where they're supposed to be. They're finally home. The separation has ended. Finally face-to-face with Jesus. Finally know him as we are known by him. The passage brings us back to the Old Testament when the children of Israel had to build a tabernacle. They had to build a temple for God so that he could dwell with them. And by the way, they only had access to him through a priest, but that all changed when Christ came and became our high priest and established us, established the church, established believers into what he calls a royal priesthood who now has access to God because of Jesus Christ. Verse 22 reminds us that, man, this temple is no longer needed because the temple is what? It is the Lord God and the Lamb. By the way, whose glory is so great that the light of the sun or moon is unnecessary. Gives you an idea of the plans and the transformation and the glory that God is preparing. Jesus encouraged his disciples in John 14. He said, fellas, let not your hearts be troubled. He said, believe in God. Believe also in me, he said. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Am I lying, Jesus is saying? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. Interesting that he didn't say, I'm going to take you to the place. He said, I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So my daughter, Beth, who's sitting in the front row, I'm not going to look at her when I say this, Uh, She flew into Cleveland on Friday, and, you know, let me take a second to say what a fantastic airport Cleveland Hopkins is right now with all the construction. I'm totally kidding. Um, But I had a great longing to see her, right, that was met the moment I saw her. It was her presence. It was her face that I longed for. Because why? Well, because my heart is bound up in her. In Genesis, we were told that God dwelled with Adam and Eve, We're told that he walked in the cool of the garden with them until that relationship was severed through rebellion and self-worship. And now God in all of his wonderful and terrible glory will be the God of the redeemed, the God of the reconciled, the God of the humble, the God of the weak, 
the God of the oppressed, the God of the abused, the God of the lonely, the God of those who have suffered and endured through waiting and hoping in faith. Our hearts will be bound up with his heart. Our desires will be bound up with his desires. We will know what it means to be truly satisfied, what it means to be truly content, what it means to be truly unalone, and what it means to be truly known. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly. We just don't see it all. We can't see it all right now. But then face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So things are still dim. Things are still dim. Isn't it great that the Bible just doesn't like fudge around with that? Isn't it great that the Bible gets so real with how everything actually is? Things are still dim. We don't see things clearly. That's why we let the words of Jesus fill us with something that's missing. Fill us with a hope and a peace that goes beyond anything we can create for ourselves by only looking at what we can see. Christian faith is this. You don't know what, but you know who. You don't trust what you can see because you can't even see tomorrow. None of us have any clue about tomorrow. Nothing. We got nothing for it. If you could see tomorrow, you wouldn't have a reason to hope. Why? Because you'd be self-reliant. But our hope is being reunited with God which is a hope that does not put us to shame because God's love through that hope has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So mankind will be reunited and finally, death and suffering is abolished as we see there in verse four. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Randy Alcorn in his book again made this quote. He said, sin and death and suffering and war and poverty are not natural. They are the devastating results of our rebellion against God. We long, he says, for a return to paradise, a perfect world without the corruption of sin where God walks with us and talks with us in the cool of the day. There's a reason why we fear death. There's a reason why suffering causes us to cry out, why? I've talked to some of you that say, dude, I don't know why this is happening. Why? Why don't you know why? Because it's unnatural. Because there's a reason why we weep for others who are enduring massive suffering. That's because it was never meant to be this way. So there's something in us that will never accept it. There's something in us that will never treat it as right. There's something in us that will always be offended by death. We will always struggle with even the fairness of it. And yet without fail, it just comes upon us. When in reality, it should be the most natural, expected, easy to accept thing. I mean, shouldn't it, right? I mean, we don't all experience the same things in life, do we? I mean, we all experience different things. We have different levels of talent and giftings and financial status and jobs and marriages and standards of living. I don't walk around angry because like I haven't won the Nobel Peace Prize, right? There's like nothing in me that thinks I'm gonna get to a place or a status or a level that, that deserve, it's deserving of that, right? I'm not disappointed that I wasn't born into like a royal family. I'm just sad about that, right? <laughs> but death and suffering, man, though it comes to all of us in this generous installment of one per person, right? It offends us. 
And yet they're the great equalizer. We're equally terrified of it, and we're equally offended by it. Romans 8 tells us this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And then it says this, not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, Paul says, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Then he says this, listen. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so some of us have gotten to that place where it's like, I just, I haven't seen anything for so long. And I feel like I keep falling into despair and it's caused me to want to just give up. It's caused me to want to just look down at all of this and every week that I'm checking into this service and you're up there using your hands, Ronnie, it just causes me to think like, what, what, what is this thing that I'm hoping and I'm waiting for? And yet all through scripture, we're saying the reason why God allows us not to see the final picture and portrait that he originally painted is so that we will build a hope is so that we will build perseverance, is so that we will build a particular kind of endurance, which, by the way, Jesus experienced for us. Jesus is giving us a hope beyond just the vapor of what this life is in verse 4. The former things will pass away. Tears will dry forever because all the sadness, all the tragedy you experience in life will have no opportunity to return. Death and suffering will be abolished because you won't have a body that runs down and grows old ever again. There will be no more mourning because there will be no more death to mourn. This is what Jesus came to make possible. This is why you can look at each other as brothers and sisters when somebody is sharing what they're going through and you can say, Everything is going to be okay. And that's not a trite, horribly thin, pointless cliche. Because you can anchor that in something solid, in something true. This is the comfort that Ebenezer Scrooge was missing because of the change he had forged in life. Marley said everything is not going to be okay, Ebenezer. And again, let's understand what going to be means, okay? I need you to listen to this as we close. Whether God grants some of us physical healing or not, whether God restores broken relationships or not, we have the hope of what's going to be. There is going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We are going to be with Jesus, the Lamb of God. Sin, suffering, death are going to be defeated and lose their sting for all eternity because of what's been accomplished on the cross. And what does he say? Well, these words are trustworthy and these words are true. So we look at the grand narrative of scripture and we see a God who had such great love for his rebellious creatures that got the brush and marred the painting that he decided to repaint the portrait that they unjustly distorted and attempted to destroy. Well, what kind of God is this who does this? 
Well, it's a kind God. It's an inviting God. It's a God who hates sin but loves sinners. It's a God who sent his son to suffer so that suffering would not have to be your final and my final future. A God who says, everything is going to be okay and can be believed because his words are trustworthy and true and everything that has been said in this book has come to pass. So I'm going to end our time here in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verses 17 to 23. You don't have to turn there. But this is an invitation and this is a call for us as the church to persevere. Because we've been redeemed, we get to look forward to this final restoration. And these are the words of Jude. He said, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he calling us to do right there? Go back and read the words. Don't leave the Bible on your shelf. Go back. Receive the encouragement of the true and trustworthy words of the apostles who wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, he says, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And he says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Now, how many of us are doubting today? My hand's up for reals right now. How many of us are doubting? He says, have mercy on those who doubt. He says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And don't be, don't, don't be, don't be so courageless. Grab people. Be kind and loving. To others, show mercy with fear. So let there be a sobriety about our relationships. He says, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So the call here from Jude is always the call. It's always the call to persevere. It's always the call that says as soon as we step away from the family of faith, as soon as because of all these things that we can't see and our hope is starting to diminish and we put this book on the shelf and we keep ourselves distant from one another and we stop praying because we can't see, it means that our hope is just going to be washed out into the shores of life. So the call here to persevere from Jude is one of saying, hey, stick to Jesus. Stick to his words. Stick to the people that hold the truth of his words in their heart so that you don't lose hope and you remember. You remember what waits for those who wait and endure through patience and faith and hope. Someday, we will be face-to-face -face with Jesus. So let's draw near. Let's hold fast. Let's consider. Let's encourage. Let's be courageous. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the great hope that we have in Christ Jesus.
Lord, we thank you that even though our faith is so weak and doubt is washing over us, Lord, you are with us. Your rod and your staff comforts us. You lead us down paths of righteousness for your namesake. Lord, you never leave our side, even in our weakest moments. So God, we pray that you would call us back or that we would have so much hope in what we can't see, but that we would believe these words, we would believe the testimony of your word that is trustworthy and true and that, Holy Spirit, you would fill us with assurance and greater faith as we wait for the restoration that will be ours in Christ. God, help us to persevere until the end. Help us to encourage one another as we draw near to you this morning, as we sing from hearts that are broken in all kinds of different places, as we want things that are lasting and new, and yet we know that they're not going to be able to be found or discovered or maintained or sustained by anything other than Christ. Lord, that's encouragement for us. So help us to return to these things today and hope with joy. We thank you for all this in Christ's name. Together we say, amen.